so there's a, a whole area of research talking about how being out in nature is restorative. The basic finding is that if you go outside and spend time in green space, it, it recharges you better and more completely than say going for a walk on a city block. Hello and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? Today, I'm pulling one out of the archives. We've had a lot of new listeners since the podcast launched, so I decided to play one of the older shows. We're going all the way back to episode 26. That's over 150 episodes back. That's over two years back. So while you're listening, not only will you get some useful information from one of the best episodes I did shortly after my launch, but you'll also get to see just how much the podcast has changed. But before we jump into that, I want to remind you to check out ADHD Rewired with Eric Tivers, Hacking Your ADHD with Will Curb, ADHD Diversified with MJ, and the ADHD Friendly Lifestyle with Moira Mabin. Each of those is part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network, just like this show, and I can't recommend them highly enough. Also, our scavenger hunt contest starts pretty much now. There are details and rules posted in the ADHD Essentials Facebook community. I'd love for you to be a part of this, so please take a minute, check out the show notes for the link, or go to facebook.com slash ADHD Essentials Community to sign up. I'm really looking forward to seeing what everyone finds during this scavenger hunt. And I can't wait to give away that Lego set. Welcome to the show. Today, we're taking an episode out of the ADHD Essentials Vault. We're revisiting a conversation with James Garrett of Brain by Design. In this episode, James discusses the four qualities of restorative activities, managing the pull of our phones, the important role rest plays in performance, and nutrient-rich boredom. All right, let's get rolling. Our society is such a go-go-go culture that we oftentimes don't, we don't, we don't sort of give enough uh, attention to how we rest or, or recharge, right? Um, and, and when you start looking at, you know, at the most successful, most productive, most uh, focused individuals, they don't really follow that formula, go, go, go. They follow a formula that looks a little more something like go, recharge, go, recharge, go, recharge. They oscillate, actually. They're hardworking, uh, but they also very deliberately rest. I have a good friend who is a, a gold medalist in, uh, in two-man kayaking. And we've talked a lot about what makes peak athletes the very best at what they do. You know, his observations of watching all these athletes over the years 
is that the best athletes don't train harder. They actually rest better. Really? That they're better when they're off. They're more deliberate about what they're doing while they're off. They're not necessarily just surfing the web and passively entertaining themselves, right? Uh, they're calming their bodies. They're meditating. They're doing yoga. They're disconnecting psychologically from the training. All these kinds of things that are more intentional than you might suspect. So that's interesting. Um, there's a, a whole lot in there that's interesting. Um, mm. But a few things that are jumping to my mind immediately. Um, and one of the roles that I play when, I, when I'm talking to experts is as the, the frustrated parent, right? Mm. Like, so as we talk, I'm going to occasionally play the role of the overwhelmed parent. Yeah. And if I'm the overwhelmed parent and you're telling me, no, totally take a break and pause and calm down or slow down or whatever the appropriate term is, mm. I'm going, how? Like, how do I do that? Because <laughs> I have to work for 40 hours a week at least. And then I come home and my kids have homework and my kids have soccer and they don't go to sleep anyway. So even when I would have time with my wife or my husband to chill out and watch an episode of SpongeBob SquarePants, because apparently I still like that. <laughs> I can't because my kids keep coming out because they like SpongeBob too. And now I'm chasing them back into their room. Like, when do I pause? Right, right. Yeah, no, I completely, I completely get it. I've got a four, uh, almost five-year-old, and and life is crazy, right? Life is intense. Life is fast-paced. We have so much time pressure mm -hmm. that we're all under. So, so a few, a few different things. The sort of entry point that I really talk about with folks is that you really want to start small, right? You don't, you don't want to bite off more than you can chew. Something is better than nothing in terms of pausing. If you want to get really small, there's a a brilliant book by uh, Cheng Mei Tan called Joy on Demand. He actually, he actually talks about taking a single breath as like the starting place. So of course that, that particular book was on, is mostly on meditation. He was, uh, they call him Google's jolly good fellow. So he was the one who basically initiated the whole mindfulness uh, training within Google and, uh, and, and does a lot with, has become sort of a public voice for, for mindfulness and meditation. And we are pro-mindfulness on this podcast. Good, good. <laughs> uh, but he really says start with a, a single breath, you know? So, so think of it this way, right? Think of the times when you're just getting from place to place, whether that's driving in the car, whether that's waiting in line at the grocery store, whether that's, we actually have lots of micro moments in which we, we, what we often do in, you know, we're waiting in line at a restaurant, whatever that is, we're always waiting for something, or mm -hmm. oftentimes we are. Those, those moments are actually can be quite restorative if you breathe. It, you know, think, think of it this way. Think of it as opportunities to recharge your mental battery rather than annoyances that you just have to get through. Surfing your phone as an activity doesn't necessarily recharge your mental battery. Um, it's fun, which is why we do it, but it doesn't, it's not necessarily restorative, meaning it's not, you're not recharging the sort of neurochemicals and, and kinds of kind of raw power that you need to kind of be your best self. What you're doing is you're draining your battery even further. But if you're breathing while you're waiting in line to eat at a restaurant, and, and again, the key to breath is you're breathing out about twice as slow as you're breathing in. If you're doing that while you're in line at a restaurant, by the time you get your meal, you might feel like a different person. What I really liked there was your, your mention of the phone and how the phone takes away 
some of the tranquility that we might otherwise be able to find in those small moments of waiting in line at the grocery store or at a restaurant, um, an area that I noticed it was stealing peace of mind for me was when I took my dog for a walk. And so I've taken to intentionally leaving my phone in the car when I go places, so that I'm stuck without it. And I started doing it to see how hard, how strong the pull was. Mm. But um, sort of in, in getting to know you and doing, listening to some of the talks you've given around this power pause, I've been more mindful of the quiet of that. And, mm. and the dog walk in particular is coming from an interview I heard with you. Uh, hmm. where you talked about the wandering mind, and, and yeah. which is where I would love to go next. But what I realized was that I was listening to podcasts when I walked my dog. Hmm. And I was like, wait, there's stuff that I'm trying to create that I am not creating. Like I'm not having an easy time of creating these things because I'm not letting my mind wander. I'm only hmm. trying to create these things when I'm trying to create these things. And I, I used to be super creative because my mind would wander all the time and it wasn't always listening to podcasts like it is now. Although listeners totally keep listening to podcasts. <laughs> but so I took, I take, I take that 10 to 20 minutes of walking the dog and I don't wear my headphones anymore. I just walk the dog and it's unreal how much easier it is for me to come up with ideas and create stuff in the past two weeks since I've started doing that. Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. So I, I, if you don't mind transitioning over to that wandering mind, if it's appropriate, if, if we start somewhere else, that's okay too. So, so yeah, so two things are happening when you go in on a break. You know, we think of this as break. We, we actually, again, culturally, we sort of see it as wasted time, unfortunately, um, in, in, in every type of institution, whether that's schools or workplaces or, or whatever, we look at it as, you know, we used to call it daydreaming, actually, mm-hmm. um, and punished it in schools, quite frankly. So, so your mind basically goes between two different modes of attention. One is called executive mode. This is the one the ADHD people stink at. <laughs> so executive mode is basically when you're directing your attention at something. Uh, it's, it's just focused attention. You're directing your attention at something. And it costs you something. It actually is, is mentally depleting your, you know, your brain is just like a, your cell phone battery. And so as you use that resource of attention, you're actually using up kind of the percentages of your battery. It's sort of going down throughout the day. The other primary mode of attention is what psychologists call mind-wandering mode. I like to call it creative mode because I think it's a more a more positive frame and actually I think more accurate as to what's happening. Creative mode is something your mind does by default. So if you don't demand anything at all from your mind, what your mind will do is go back to this state. This is your brain's default state. In fact, the, the parts of the brain that, 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 uh, are responsible for generating this type of mental activity. They call it the default mode network. So it's the default mode. And and it's one of the biggest discoveries actually in the last 10 years in in neuroscience and psychology. And we really stumbled upon this as a finding. We didn't think our brain was doing much of anything at all when we were wandering. But but what we've started discovering is brain is highly active during this state when we don't require what, you know, when we're not 
sort of requiring it to pay attention to something. We just let it do whatever it wants. It's actually highly active and it activates different regions of the brain than the ones that, than, than the attentional regions of the brain. So when we're paying attention to something, we're using part of our brain right behind our forehead, your prefrontal cortex. When you go into mind wandering mode, basically that part of your brain right behind your forehead that's responsible for executive function and, and paying attention, it, it goes dark, it goes quiet. And again, the default mode network, which is a series of regions kind of deeper in the brain, light up. So what's one of the things that's really fascinating are these two different modes are actually mutually exclusive. You cannot be in one and also in the other. Again, two things are happening when you're in mind wandering mode. One is that your brain uh, is recharging that mental battery. So this is like the equivalent of plugging your brain into the wall, just like you do your cell phone, right? So when you go for a walk through the woods or in a trail or in a park or, you know, whatever, it, it literally is the equivalent of recharging your ability to come back and focus again another time. You're recharging that mental battery. So, um, so it's not actually a wasted or, or sort of unproductive activity. It's actually highly productive in that one sense of just simply being a recharge activity. But the other way in which it's really productive is that your brain is doing a kind of deep problem solving activity. And when it's in mind wandering mode, it's much more playful and free associative, which is why when we're taking a shower, we have all these good ideas or why when we're walking the dog, as you said, suddenly you have this insight and, you, and then the, you make this random other connection and it's not all brilliance, right? But what we've started to realize is creativity is not a stroke of, of a fully formed insight. That's, that rarely happens. Uh, what creativity is, is hundreds and even thousands of little micro insights that build up over time. So, so if you can get good at going into and harnessing this mind-wandering or creative state and kind of go between these two states throughout your day, think of it like a sprint break, sprint break, sprint break, you can really get more done and be in a more focused state when you're paying attention to something, right? Writing an email, et cetera. And you can access the sort of deeper parts of your creative brain uh, all the while recharging it. So I'm wondering around sort of that passiveness of the default mode. And, and passiveness is not the right word. I recognize that. But I'm wondering about how that connects to like mindlessly watching television. Are we, and by we, I really mean kids who are sitting in front of the TV. Is that getting us to getting them to default mode or are they following the story theoretically? So we're not really hitting default mode. So television is not actually something that's recharging kids so that then they can go do their homework afterwards. So, so think of the way television is created. It's designed to sort of grab your attention and keep grabbing it regularly throughout a program. And, and the way it does that is that it moves much more quickly than regular life. Right. It, it's a cutting to this scene, to this scene, to this scene. The, the pace and way that the frames are cut uh, in many ways is it, it sort of engages what some cognitive psychologists call like our bottom-up system. And so what does the bottom-up system mean? It's sort, of in, it's sort of automatic, right? So, so it's not that you're, as they're grabbing, as it's presenting different frames and sort of holding your attention in this fast-paced style. Are we just connecting to it more emotionally than cognitively? That's part of it. That's one way to think of it. But it's also um, 
kind of more stimulus oriented, right? The, 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 the nature of the way it's holding our attention is through kind of continued stimulus. It is, it is about that sort of um, kind of more emotional kind of holding. But the other way to think of it is there's different levels of quality when it comes to attention, right? So, so I'm thinking my own four-year-old daughter, I, I'll notice whenever she's watching something, for example, on PBS, they're much more, uh, the, the shows are much slower paced, you'll notice yep. right off the bat. Uh, and they'll do things like ask a question and then leave what feels like an unnatural pause after the character asks the question. And when they do this, what they're actually doing is waiting for the kids to respond. Right. It's four or it's orange or it's the, you know, whatever. And that's engaging the kids' top-down systems. That's engaging their prefrontal cortex. That's engaging their um, thinking brain, right? Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, there's, as opposed to, to a, a channel like, like Nickelodeon, and there's been some research actually that's come out on differences between different stations, it's much more bottom-up, right? So you mentioned Bob, Bob SpongeBob SquarePants. SpongeBob SquarePants is actually one of the ones that some research has been done on, and, and, and it very much is a bottom-up kind of stimulus show where it, it's, it's holding attention, basically getting your amygdala fire to fire over and over and over again. Now I can't just care for thoughts. So, so again, there's that level of different ranges of quality when it comes to TV, but I would say in general, TV does not restore emotion regulation. In general, the, the trend is that it depletes it. And, and I actually think this is true with most forms of anything that's kind of screen-based. Yeah, it can be a tablet or a phone or whatever as well. And my impression is that there's a little bit of a hierarchy there where tablets and phones seem to be depleting things more than television, although both are, they're all depleting. It's just my impression from what's I, what I've read and even just personal experience is that the nature of the games and things that are being played, it requires more conscious choice. It requires more interactivity and that depletes things a little more rapidly. That's probably right. I don't know if there's, there's research that's directly compared the, media, the different types of media that way. It's actually fascinating. Yeah, I haven't seen anything that directly compares the two. I've only seen stuff about what's like iPads and TV yeah. and things about what television does and right. then had to put those two things together in my own head and be like, right. oh, this seems more significant. I mean, I, I think the, the easiest way to think of it is, okay, well, what kinds of activities do restore and which ones don't? And that's where I'm heading next. Because my next question, specifically really aiming at kids and aiming at, and with the parents in mind, a little bit less of the global perspective and more of the family perspective. And I'll start with a little bit of a tale. Uh, my wife graduated from BU with a master's degree in health communications on Saturday. Awesome. Yeah, pre- I, she's amazing. She's, she's a scientist you know, decided to head in a little bit of a different direction. She still works for the company she works for and does the research that she does, but just trying to add something in her, her goal is to be sort of be like an ambassador for science and to make science more accessible to people who are not comfortable with it. Um, but as she, I mean, she's down on the floor sitting in a robe, like waiting to get her diploma. Right. And I'm up there in the stands with my dad and my sisters and my in-laws and my identical twin sons who are nine years old and we're sitting in these chairs for two hours and 45 minutes. Mm. And yes, they got up to pee like four times. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, yes, I went down and got them M&Ms. <laughs> and, 
But they kept saying to me, like, oh, this is so boring. I'm so bored. And I'm the dad who's like a jerk about that, right? Because I yeah. am the brain guy. So I would say things like, good, you need to learn how to do that. And I think I might have to add, like, well, yeah, I mean, you think you're bored, but really you're restoring your executive functions. Yeah. So is that a thing? Am I on that to something? It is a thing. Like, no, you are onto something. Okay. You are onto something. So mom, dad listening? That's what you say to your kids when they complain that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you can make it more, uh, you can make it a little bit more active or fun mm-hmm. uh, while they're restoring. It doesn't have to just be kind of staring at a wall, so to speak, or <laughs> staring at an auditorium as it, as it is. But yeah, there, there's, there's a whole, so there's a whole, uh, there's sort of four characteristics of an activity that make it the most restorative. The, the biggest one, or one of, the, one of the most important ones is how relaxing it is. The more relaxing, the better. So when you're resisting the boredom, that makes it less relaxing and therefore less restorative. Yeah. Like my kids were doing. Like, this is yeah, really yeah, boring. Yeah. I hate this. It's awful. I'm pushing against that boredom. So it's not as restorative. That's right. So anytime, yeah. And, and I've experienced this in myself and I know we all have, which is anytime there's sort of emotional resistance to something, it, you can f- kind of feel the tension. And anytime that, that sort of negative tension or stress response happening the body it's it's kind of depleting that mental battery um so I'm how sorry, relaxed I interrupted <laughs> you no, no, no. three levels of restoration yeah yeah yeah. you know you're good no, it's, and, it, and these aren't necessarily levels they're sort of more like the more of these elements the activity has the better it's not that the activity won't be restorative if it's only got one it's more like how nutrient dense is the activity right <laughs> okay so it's, so it's how relaxing it is it's uh psychological distance how so fully detached is better than semi-detached so oftentimes i'll work with companies you know we'll we'll try to create a culture of of taking like little micro breaks and going on walks and one of the biggest things that to your you know that people will do is they'll just stick their phone in their pocket and go for the walk right and then much like you were saying with your dog walks that phone on your body or even on your person right even if it's in a bag or something it exerts a, a form of, I call it phone pressure. So we've got time pressure and phone pressure. It exerts some sort of cognitive pressure on your, on your uh, attentional resources that basically make you want to check it. They, it's the urge to check. Mm-hmm. And that urge to check is pulling at that mental battery. So think of it this way. I'm going to be draining my mental battery much more quickly if I've got my phone on my body. It's touching my body and I can feel it reminding me that I should check. And listeners, if you don't believe what he's saying right now, take a second and be aware of the pull of your phone because you're totally feeling it right now, even if it's not in the same room as you. That's what he's talking about. Yeah. So, so it's sort of, so I'm from a phone perspective. So, so I'm sort of putting the phone uh, as a placeholder for work. What's like, like having work on the brain, right? Because work is how we connect to, and being in touch with our boss or our colleagues or whatever. And the phone is even bigger than that, right? Because if I'm having a conflict with a friend of mine on Facebook, I'm also feeling that coming through my phone. Hmm. And if, if my grandmother is sick and I'm worried about her and that phone is how I'm going to get that message if she passes away or if something takes a turn for the worse or even a turn for the better. Hmm. So the phone is also doing that. It does so much more than just work. It, it's our window to the outside world beyond our immediate borders. 
That's right. And, and so think of it this way, whenever it's basically, it's pretty difficult to enter into mind wandering mode or recharge mode, creative mode, if your phone is on you. It kind of keeps the gate locked and, and keeps you in that sort of battery draining mode, executive mode. And this speaks back to what you mentioned early of, about doing, doing your, your mind wandering mode in small steps. Mm. Because I am sure that there are people listening who are like, yeah, but I can't, I can't not have my phone. What if something happens to my kid? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if? But if you start small, like you can absolutely walk your dog around the block for 10 minutes and leave your phone at home. You can absolutely go into the store for 15 minutes and leave your phone in the car. And that's okay. There isn't going to be any tragedy that's so significant that that 10 or 15 minutes is going to matter. And that, that allows us to practice these smaller doses of mind-wandering mode and to recharge. Absolutely. Yeah, and also there's other sort of steps in between that that, that you can also try. Like I'll, I, my default for my phone is silent. I don't have any uh, notifications. Um, I mean, they come through like in text messages. So, so I stripped out all my notifications, no email notifications, no Facebook notifications, et cetera. That's, that's standard. For, for how I've set it up. Yep. Uh, but the, but the other one that I stopped doing was, was tech, like the beeping, right? So <laughs> on a, on an iPhone, it's just the moon, the little moon signal. When you pull up the, the menu menu from the bottom, you click the moon, it says, do not disturb. That's now, and it took me about a month to get comfortable with this, but that's now my new default setting. Oh, wow. I don't hear any beeps in my day, uh, unless it's from my wife or my preschool. Mm -hmm. I actually think I have my wife's parents and my parents as well. So if you go to your phone and this, again, I'm not sure quite how an Android works, but this is how it works on an iPhone. On the bottom left, you'll see the favorites, the little star that says favorites. If you add people to your favorites list, then they, when they do call you or text you, you do hear that, that, that breaks through that sound barrier, even though you put your phone on do not disturb they break through the sound barrier and you can hear them calling you. So in a, another way of saying that is it puts your mind at ease. If there's an emergency with your kid or anything else, basically 95% of the world can't get through to you, but the 5% that's critical still can. That's awesome. That is default for ADHD people. That's, that should be your default. Oh, mighty listeners. I've been talking to my listeners a lot in this episode. Um, especially the notifications. You don't want any notifications. I don't have any. I can go to that saying, I can go to Facebook and find out if someone sent me a message. I don't even know why half the things offer notifications on my iPhone and even on my computer. I'm like, I don't need to ever hear from you. So get rid of the notifications because they're not worth it. And then I'm loving the do not disturb thing. I didn't know you could let some people get through. So now that I know that my phone is going to be on do not disturb all the time. Right now it's just set to vibrate all the time. And half the time I don't notice. Um, <laughs> so that's great. That's good to know. My peace of mind, it's dramatic how much more calm I feel throughout my day. I, I feel like it's increased my sort of, God, just sense of being in control of my day by 25 to 50%. Wow. Just that single act of putting it on, on Do Not Disturb. That's huge. Um, so we've done relaxing. We've done psychological distance. What's our third nutrient? Choice. So choice is about doing an activity that you really would like to do, right? There's a certain energy and excitement if it's not 
demanded or required of you. This is about autonomy, right? So if you want to go for a walk or if you think stretching is better or yoga or meditation or listening to music, you want to be the one in control of that. So control and choice really make a difference in our sense of psychological well-being. And, and so revisiting my kids at graduation, right? Mm. Looking at these nutrients, they had no choice. Okay. So yeah. there goes that. Because they had no choice, it wasn't relaxing. And they're sitting in auditorium seats. So not very relaxing because they're like wood and awful. And then, and they had probably no idea what to do about psychological distance because they were sort of detached from all of the things they would rather be doing. They were in a totally strange place. They'd never been before. It was a little stressful getting there because of traffic and that kind of stuff and rain. They might've had some psychological closeness to that stress of driving of my wife and I driving up. Hmm. Um, and they didn't really know what to expect. They'd been to my graduation for my master's degree, but that was a couple of years back when they were six or seven. So they may or may not remember that. But so their psychological distance was, I don't really know. I can't really tell you how that was, except that they knew they were bored. And so mm. that probably got rid of the psychological distance because they were paying attention to that in much the same way that we might pay attention to our phones. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. That's a great unpacking of what was going on in their minds. Right. And so, and I, I unpack it for my kids, but I'm sure that, that that sort of extrapolates to any number of scenarios, right? That's right. My brother has a football game that I have to go to, or my sister is in a cheerleading competition in Florida, and I live in Wyoming, and I have to fly down to Florida with them because we're going to go to Disney World. But we went to Disney World for two hours, and I had to sit in this cheerleading competition for four hours, and it is not fun, and I don't want to do it. So those kinds of situations, right? Even just going to grandma's house can be, for mom and dad, kind of relaxing. But for the kid, it's a very different experience because they didn't have a choice in going. It's not as relaxing because they're bored, which has taken away that relaxation. They're not being mindful of the relaxation side because kids tend to want to move. Um, and then that psychological distance, who knows where that lands at grandma's house. Well, and, and thinking it's, when, when it's psychological distance, it's sort of distance from what? I think you nailed it when you said this, something that's stressful. A lot of the research that's been done is, is related to the workplace. So it's psychological distance from work. So if you're, if you're hanging out with a colleague from work and you're going to lunch, it's a more restorative break if you're talking about things that aren't work-related. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the easiest way to understand it. Okay. But it's also true with, with any kind of stressful situation. So if it's school with kids, like talking, doing stuff that's completely unschool related. This is why recess is so powerful for kids is because it genuinely is like, you know, something totally different than they're sort of sitting at a desk paying attention to subjects. And it should be all the way through high school. I wish recess was all the time, every grade level, up through high school even. And, oh, for sure. Yeah, and yeah. lunch should last longer. I've been like, lunch is ridiculous. Lunch is, you get 15 minutes to shove this food in your face and five of that time, five of those minutes you're spending in line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we, we again, well, what happens, so let's, let's, let, me, let me round out the last uh, piece of the, what makes it restorative in, in its growth or mastery over something. So anytime you're doing an activity that feels like you're improving in that thing, mm -hmm. people, it's really recharging to us motivationally and otherwise. Uh, so, so I think of this like an acronym or a, I have like a mnemonic that I use, uh, really cool dancing gorillas. So 
just remember really cool dancing gorillas and, and you won't forget what kinds of ingredients are helpful. So really is relaxing, right? Mm -hmm. Cool is choice. Uh, D is dancing is distance and gorillas is growth. So, and I think I said three, so I was wrong. No, no, that's okay. I love the idea of nutrient rich boredom. Nutri nutrient rich boredom. Yeah. Well said. Well yeah. said. So that's, uh, that's got to have to become something. If, if anybody's interested in sort of just an experiment with this, um, there's a, a brilliant uh, writer and, and sort of radio show host. Um, her name's Manoush Zamarodi, and she wrote a book called Bored and Brilliant. And if you just Google the Bored and Brilliant Challenge, uh, it's a week-long challenge that's specifically trying to get people more into mind-wandering mode, and it's totally related to technology. So everything is about a challenge with your phone each day of the week. It's a seven-day challenge. Uh, it's super fun for kids. Kids really seem to like it. So Bored and Brilliant Challenge. So I think that this very nicely brings us back to mindfulness, which we've sort of skipped across the edge of a little bit here and there. But mindfulness is getting all of these, mm. right? Having a, having a solid mindfulness practice, it's going to get us that psychological distance because a major component of practicing mindfulness is learning how to develop psychological distance mm. through the use of the mindfulness practice. It's a choice because you're doing it on purpose and it's your choice. And if you're not doing it, that's okay. No pressure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's relaxing because you're largely not doing much. You're sort of sitting there or laying there or standing or walking, however you practice your mindfulness. And then as time goes by, you can see the growth of that mindfulness practice as well. You can see like at, mm. at one point I could sit and pay attention to my breath and a minute felt like forever. And now I can do it for five and it's not that big of a deal. So we can also see that growth and that development. Yeah, that's right. So, mind, so mindfulness is one of these kind of super activities. Right. Um, uh, we, we, have, we, have, we have this category of super foods, right? It, it's like a super, a super break, right? Or a super, you know, and meditation specifically as the road to mindfulness uh, is like a, a practice that, that's just, it's super nutrient dense, as you said. Going back to this idea of, of the pause and the breaks and those, those sorts of things, one of the things I've done with my clients is I talk to them about the importance of planning their breaks which might sound a little intense, depending on who you are. You're like, I can't plan my, pro my productivity hours. You want me to plan my breaks? But it's useful. And, I, and you can do it with kids too. I know because some of the clients I do it with most often are kids. But the reason I have them plan it is not for the reasons you're giving me, which are now other reasons for me to give, have my kids plan their breaks. Um, it's not to make it more intentional so that it's more restorative, but rather that they're bad at being aware of time because they have ADHD. So a five-minute break can easily become a 15-minute break. Mm -hmm. Now you don't have as much time to do your homework. Mm -hmm. So I would have them plan like, all right, what, what is a break going to look like? What are you going to do? Are you going to get a snack? Are you going to go for a walk? Are you going to talk to your mom? What's this break going to be? And often I would have them try to make the break something that is the opposite of what they were doing for their for work, whether it's school or a an adult or whatever. So if you're sitting at a computer, you want to stand up and walk around and get some activity in. Even if it's just pacing around your office for lack of a better thing to do. Get away from the screen. But now, and now I'm looking at sort of the restorative nature of that as well in terms of if what I've been doing all day is sort of corralling little kids and it's been noisy and loud and challenging, when I get to take a break, I should probably go somewhere quiet where there are fewer demands on 
my decision-making skills uh, so that I can restore some of them. Am I, is this making sense? Am I crazy? Totally. No, no, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. In fact, that's one of the, one of the, so there's a, a whole area of research talking about how being out in nature is restorative. Um, they call it attention restoration theory, ART, attention restoration theory. This is out of the University of Michigan. The basic finding is that if you go outside and spend time in green space, it, it recharges you better and more completely than, say, going for a walk on a city block. Mm -hmm. um, and part of the, one of the theories of why is that nature demands less from our attentional resources. You mentioned decision-making. Decision-making is a heavily uh, depleting activity um, because it requires so much attention, right? But, but when you're navigating uh, like a busy urban area, for example, uh, it's, let's say you're taking your break around a, a, big, a busy urban area, um, you're, you know, you're making all these little micro decisions. You're trying to navigate distance with people and, and, and cars and traffic and safety. Basically, you're your brain is in a vigilant state. You, 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 you have to turn up the volume on how vigilant you are about pretty much safety, right? And, and not being rude, basically. Um, so, so anytime vigilance goes up, that's an attention draining activity. It just requires more from your brain. It, again, there's degrees of restoration, right? And, and one, of the, one of the ways to make it the very most restorative is to be in green space. And it's just, as you said, it's because that the pace feels much quieter. The rhythms of nature are very, uh, nature's never in a hurry, right? That's one <laughs> way to think of it. Uh, you know, Bill Bryson in his book, uh, Short History of Renewal and Everything, says nature just wants to be. Right. That's it. It just wants to be. It doesn't want to do, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? It just wants to be. That's its whole goal. Right, uh, And so based on that underlying logic of our natural systems, being is a very different mo mental mode or, or sort of mindset than doing. The only time we're ever in a hurry is when we're doing. So, so and that's when the pressure rises, the stress rises, and, and the activities that we're doing are inherently sort of battery draining. But, but when you're in a, in a park and you're just sort of wandering and, the, you know, it's, it's like there's enough, there's enough going on that it sort of tickles your attention, right? The leaves and the beauty and the sounds of the river, whatever it is, but it doesn't demand your attention. And, and so, again, anyway, one of the reasons that, that they think that attention restoration theory or, or um, the being in nature might be one of the most restorative kinds of activities is simply because it it doesn't demand your attention. So to your point about being alone, uh, about, about getting out of that decision-making, that, that you don't have to make a bunch of decisions. This is partly why rolling around on the kids, rolling around on the floor playing with our kids in our house is a much more restorative activity than trying to play with them, doing the same kind of activity, but in a public space. It's partly because we're always concerned about their safety and there's cars and all these other things that requires much more vigilance. And there's the, like, what are people thinking about me? All of that social management. Anytime you're worried about the impression that you're making on others or how people are perceiving you, that's a, that's a, let me, let me just list the battery draining activities. So it's sure. decision, decision-making, multitasking, managing the impression you're making on others, 
Um, any kind of experience that, that increases stress, like being in traffic, uh, as I mentioned, screen time, <laughs> almost across the board, um, will deplete your mental resources. Because not, these aren't, this isn't good or bad, it's just a, the fact that it's using up that precious mental battery. It's not, this is not good or bad, it's neutral. This is about energy management, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's not a moral thing, it's, it's just about knowing that when I'm on the screen, I'm just using up some of that energy. And, it, right. and just being aware of that, and then deliberately either choosing to continue with that activity, which is completely great, or deciding to do something else. It's, 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 it's a, in the realm of choice, as opposed to just being habitual, right? So, so there's, there's those, and then doing errands, right, with kids, running around to the stores where you've got, you're toting kids in and out of cars, and we're going to the grocery store. I mean, we're going to the grocery store with my four-year-old is just... It's so, because the whole time I'm managing my own emotions, trying to be really calm and cool and collected. I'm making tons of little micro decisions. Should we get the Prego, you know, pasta sauce, or should we get the organic variety? Like, you know, there's like all these different things that I'm trying to do while managing. So I'm multitasking. Yep. I'm managing, you know, and then she's having some big upset and then I'm worried about what other people are thinking of us. So I'm managing the, I'm, I'm doing like five or six different types of things that exhaust my battery. And this is why shopping or running errands, especially with kids is so exhausting is because you're just, think of it this way. We talk about uh, nutrient dense restorative activities. This is like, um, it's literally an inverse. You're like stacking all of the things that drain an activity and, and it's just like a powerhouse right. of mental. So it's like running, you know, 15 different apps in the background of your phone. You, you know, if you know how the, the battery drains faster when you're running more apps in the background, it's the exact same phenomenon. One of the things I talk to my clients about, when, and I'm thinking specifically about that example of bringing a four-year-old to the supermarket. Yeah. One of the things I talk to my clients about that I'm now seeing in a new light, although I think I got this. I just didn't get it as intentionally as I have it now is um, around setting the kid up for success while going shopping. Right. And a lot of that boils down to making really clear expectations available before you get to the store. Yeah. Which really means that we're making choices and decisions in advance. Mm. Because what I'm saying is while we're at the store, my expectation is that you will be within three steps of the cart at all times. And if you're not, if, that if it turns out that on three different occasions, when I stop the cart and ask you to come over to it, that you're too far away, then we're going to just, we're done. We're going home. Or, mm -hmm. or, if that, or if you're consistently there, then we can stop off at the book section. You can flip through a book for a little while. Or, and then if not, then we don't go to the books or whatever, whatever the appropriate mm -hmm. consequence is, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if I've made those decisions in advance and then those decisions get systematized, so that's always the expectation. Now I'm not depleting my mental reserves as much. I'm not depleting yeah. executive functions as much because it's become automatic. But if mm -hmm. I don't establish those things in advance and I'm constantly reestablishing them and making the rules up as I go, I'm depleting my executive functions because I'm making more decisions. And it's not as clear for my kids, so their behavior is not going to be as good because they don't know what to do. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's brilliant, Brendan. Yeah, this is... What you're describing, I think, is a, a brilliant use of your own limited mental battery, right? Again, it's, it's not that we don't have the ability to do that. We just don't have the ability to do what you're saying forever. We, we run out of <laughs> juice. And so if you can preserve that juice, 
that mental battery for, for longer periods of time by creating these sort of routines and expectations the way you're talking about, it's a brilliant use of your cognitive energy. Well, thank you. Just being mindful of time. Uh, and before we wrap up, do you have any ending essentials that you would like to share with the audience? Is there anything we haven't gotten to or something you want to repeat because of its significance? You know, I would just end on a hopeful message about neuroplasticity. And I, I know you are, are probably talk about this a fair amount, Brendan, but um, the brain is built for change. It, you know, you'll wake up with a different brain tomorrow than you had today. It's that sensitive to experience. So your brain is constantly changing and in, in, in pulsing and in, in moving. Your neurons are actually growing new branches, creating new, new roads and pathways all the time. And this is, of course, the same with you as it is with your kids. And when things are frustrating, when things are upsetting, uh, or they don't feel like it's going to get any better, it actually is temporary. It will feel like a, an entrenched pattern, and a lot of times it is. But that's, in, in many ways, it's, it's a matter of re, rewiring those entrenched patterns, right? Those the, 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 the things that seem like they're never going to change. We, and we say this about each other, like, Oh, humans, never, you know, they don't, the humans don't really change. Right. Um, if you look at all the neuroscience, uh, research and all the best research about, um, how flexible our brains are, it's, it's actually that we're not good at change. It's not that we can't change. It's that it's a skill set that we've never really been taught. And so getting good at the skill set of self-directed neuroplasticity of, getting in the driver's seat of really mental training and doing this consistently, just like you're saying, routinizing or making schedules and, 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 and finding ways to habitize uh, these sort of, this sort of mental workouts mm-hmm. um, is a brilliant way to uh, uh, rewire our own brains and also by extension, helping our kids rewire their own, their brains. Hey, You're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com, and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.